With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. So I go into our board meeting and I say, guys, this is not a good idea. I just talked to someone that knows more about this industry and I'm hearing this from other people too. Like this is going to cost us more money than we have. And it's a distraction. Like the business is growing fast. We should stick with this. And one of the board members looked at me, never forget and said, Hey, you're the marketing guy. Just market what we tell you to. So it's like, at that point, I'm like, well, fuck it. Then it's your company. You're going to fuck it up. If I have no power, then I'm just going to throw my hands up and be like, fuck it. Do what you want to do. We burn all our capital. We have to fire half the team. Two co-founders get fired. It was absurd that we were put in that position because of stupid decisions at the top. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in that. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You are listening to Eric Huberman, founder of Hawk Media, talking about the moment that changed everything. Because right after this, he walked away and started his very own company. If you don't know, Hawk Media is now one of the most successful marketing agencies in the world and has helped grow over 3,000 brands worldwide. Now, you must be wondering the same thing I was wondering at the start of this interview. How did he do it? How did he jump from being merely the marketing guy to CEO of a company now worth over $75 million? When you look at Eric today, it's easy to focus on the glitz and glamour of his achievements, but neither Hawk Media nor Eric's marketing genius were handed to him. Before he realized his own potential as a founder, he had to first navigate the treacherous waters of a failed real estate market, grapple with the black hole of personal debt, and endure the agonies of incompetent leadership. This episode is about capturing Eric's entire journey, not just the last leg. So let's begin by visiting the moment entrepreneurship took root in little Eric's head. Uh, your dad instilled a lot of values early on, especially as you guys as a family were growing in wealth. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember and what you heard, I guess, from just the stories of adulthood and the transition from L.A. to Ojai? My grandfather was a Polish immigrant after the World War II. And my dad, you know, from like eight years old or six years old, was working in the scrap metal yard my grandfather had built. And then he built that business. And so my dad ended up becoming very successful. He grew up, you know, in very humble surroundings. He worked his butt off. I was the oldest. And he was so concerned that I'd be a spoiled rich kid that from a young age, he was very intentional in the way he acted to make sure I wasn't. So like constantly telling me that I got to make my own money from like, five, six years old on. How did you make your own money from five or six? So he, he would encourage me to like, what do we go find quarters and pennies on the street? And then I would like put four quarters together and he'd hand me a dollar bill. And that was mm. a huge accomplishment. And then I saved up for a $5 bill and then a 10 and then a 20. And there was like an intrinsic value of gaining wealth to me at a very young age. Had nothing to do with what I was going to buy with that money. It was just the idea of making money was really cool. And then when I was six, I wanted to, you know, really build it out. So I walked around my parents or our house and just grabbed all the things I decided as a six-year-old my parents didn't need anymore, threw it in a trash bag, and walked <laughs> door to door in Ojai and tried to sell their stuff to our neighbors. Some forced spring cleaning. Yeah, basically. 
And then uh, eight years old, I went, this is a good example of my dad. I went to him and said, hey, you know, my parents' friend had bought me an acoustic guitar when I was four. I started playing and then I got really into Eric Clapton and I wanted to get his electric guitar, a Fender Strat. And there was a Squire, which is a cheap version. It was like 150 bucks. And I went to my dad and said, hey, I want to get an electric guitar. My dad looked at me and said, great, get a fucking job. Do you remember like how that made you feel in the moment? I took it totally as okay like yeah i guess i gotta get a job like i it was I didn't like know more any advice than anything else it was more like i just went oh so to get a electric guitar i have to get a job okay and so i started trying to figure out how to make money again so moving on from the the youthful uh, ventures of yeah. entrepreneurship uh you eventually got a job at a health food store yeah you got i guess a lesson in credit and, and just like like have people taking credit for your work uh so can you tell me a little bit about that story yeah no it was uh i was six months into working at this health or no eight months into working at this health food store and i was still making a minimum wage which is what i started at and they had told me when i joined that after about six months you generally get a raise and then i was training people. I was training people to work at the cash register. I was training people to stock shelves. I was training a bunch of people and I found out multiple people I was training were making 20% more than I was. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. So I went to the GM and asked him what's going on, not to my manager, but to his boss and said, what's going on here? And it turned out my boss, my manager had been taking credit for all the work I was doing and basically not doing a lot, but then saying I was the one not doing a lot. Hmm. But I realized in that moment, and I've had the, I had this experience today. Like I've relearned this lesson over and over again. I'm not going to tell someone that their trusted executive is not is the liar and I'm the right one when I have no report. Like right. I knew that it was a losing battle. It embedded the idea of hating the idea of working for someone else, where my my income was tied to someone's opinion of me versus actual material. So I was at that point on wanted to be in either sales or entrepreneurship. Moving from from this this job, you eventually go to U of A. It was super fun. I had 11 kids in my graduating class in high school. I wanted to go to a big school and I wanted the social aspect, the academics. I wasn't worried about academics. I wasn't trying to go to grad school. I didn't have any ambition to do that. Did you have any pressure academically? No. I, I, school came really easy to me. I can really pick things up quickly and retain them. So like I could never go to class, not do anything and get a three, five plus. So like I could have probably, if I put a little effort in, I could have easily been, you know, honor roll, four O student, whatever, but I didn't care. So like I was, um, you know, I rem I still remember waking up uh, at senior year and one of my roommates coming in and going, Hey, uh, you coming to the test? I'm like, what test? They're like the finance test in 15 minutes. I'm like, Oh, I grab the book off the shelf. We're halfway through the semester. I unwrap the plastic wrap around the book because I'd never opened it. I read the few chat. He told me what chapters were the test was on. I kind of skim them on the way to the test and I got an A and he got a B. You did get your your Cutco license. So uh, how did uh, how did you end up with that job? Yeah. So, I mean, every summer I wanted to learn, like all through my 20s too, I was like, I need to, I want to learn. I had heard so many times people tell me that to be successful, you have to understand sales. And every entrepreneur I knew, a bunch of successful people like, yeah, sales is critical in everything. And I was like, I started, I took it to heart. And so I tried to go work as a used car salesman. That's like the most salesy thing that's that I why. could think of. It was, I wanted to be the, I wanted the hardest, like everyone hates used car salesmen. So I want to go try it because apparently it's going to be hard. So I went, I went to do that, but no car dealership would hire a kid for three months. And I didn't want to lie and be like, oh, I'll be here. Like I dropped out of college. I was like, no, I'm going back to school in August and no one wanted to hire me. And then Cutco, like their whole method is they recruit college kids. They send mailers out and stuff. So like right when I got home, I had a mailer that said, learn how to sell and like sell knives and like, perfect. 
went to the thing, fully bought into their program because I was doing it to learn. I wasn't doing it because I needed to, for the money reasons. Thankfully, my parents did support me through college. And so I didn't join to make money. I joined to learn how to be a good salesperson. And by doing so, I followed everything they said and I ended up being their record-breaking salesperson for them. And it went really well. So just because I stuck to their program, like, and it turned out I had a natural ability to understand it. Like not only did I follow their program, but I understood why their program did what it did which was a huge learning experience. Like I credit Cutco with a lot of my success in that sense. Yeah. And they're still around. Like my oh, yeah. friend is, uh, is doing a Cutco job right now and credits it to, for all of his sales experience. Yeah. So. And it's, and if you can understand why they do things like what you, cause every bit of their script that they give you is intentional. Everything they say is intentional. And so when you start to understand why you say everything, it allows you to sell anything you learn a lot of tactics and when you when you can reflect on them and understand it it's a huge base for learning sales yeah on that note of learning there's like like naval you know naval ravikant yeah. one of his like words of wisdom is always seek the greatest learning opportunity yeah and it seems like that was that was what you were doing that's exactly what i was doing yeah and it, it, but is there ever a point where that isn't what you should be doing it seems like you should always be in a state where you maximize your learning potential because like maximizing your learning potential is going to maximize your income but not the other way around i'd say the only issue is at some point you also have to produce learning shouldn't be an endpoint. the entire purpose of learning is so you can share and apply your knowledge to make a real world impact eventually you must strike the balance between improving yourself for the future and channeling your learning to affect the present it's not that you should only produce or only learn and not produce. It's a matter of figuring where you fall in that balance. At this point, Eric invested heavily in any opportunity that maximized his learning potential. So that was, you, you mentioned, you know, pursuing where I'm going to learn the most. I got offered to run an office for Cutco after breaking the records and all that. And a month before I was supposed to open my office, a friend of mine called me and said that California had just passed this law that property owners had to filter their storm drains or it was a $70,000 fine per drain. And he had a model, he had built a prototype on the filter that they could use. And he wanted to create this company and he needed someone that understood sales and marketing to be his partner and would I want to come partner him. And I went, yep. And I called my boss at Cutco and asked him to go to breakfast and went and said, hey, I'm going to go do this because I think I'm going to learn more. As a storm drain filtering, we were going to maybe be the first mover in this industrial business. I thought we had an early mover advantage, all these things. So we went for it. I did all our legal. I set up our website, business cards, got our first contract with a really big contract that was great. Yeah, so we, I, I ended up doing all that and then the summer was coming to an end and I had not got a new apartment at college. Like I didn't know if, whether I was going to go back and I went, you know what, I'm not that passionate about it. My partner was, he loved it and I just said, hey, this has been exactly the learning I wanted. Turns out it's really not hard to start a business. Like our legal contract, I went on to Dragon Chuck Alarm Systems, downloaded their legal contract, edited it and made it our own contract. So I learned so much about how easy it is to really launch a business if you put your mind to it. Felt good about that and went, I'm going to go finish school. So those two scenarios kind of back to back represent a optimization for learning over commitment. Yes. Can you tell me, I guess, like looking back on that now, would you have made the same decisions in the same way if you were to optimize for your current, I guess, like business framework now? And when should you prioritize learning over a commitment? And when shouldn't you? 
Yeah, I don't think, I, and I say this about my own employees and it's to my detriment, but it's like, I don't think anyone should irrationally commit to anything. Like at the end of the day, sadly, like you have to look out for yourself. And like, that doesn't just mean money. You know, I think that it's not necessarily about commitment. It's over education. I think it's, it's more about what is, what leads to like currently with the information you have the best outcome. And that's in you, you have to reassess that constantly all of your life. Yeah. And it's always like, I guess, incentive alignment is something that always is uh, in my head is making sure that my best interests are in the interest of whoever I'm working with. Yeah. And so that's why in my 20s, I was so committed to learning is because I knew I didn't know anything. (laughs) Loyalty versus opportunity. It's a question we ask ourselves when we're standing on the precipice of change. Should I break off a commitment I have right now to chase an opportunity with greater potential? While it is important to prioritize our own goals, it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes in doing so, we might face unattractive consequences. Offending someone, losing a friend, a business partner, another opportunity. It's clear that learning at all costs has its costs. At the same time, we can't ignore the rewards we might reap from prioritizing opportunity over loyalty. For Eric, at least, the answer was clear. If he wants to reach his full potential, he has to do what's right for himself. I think it was February. I started to really go, oh, what am I going to do? I have to like actually get a job now. I ended up going back to the real estate idea. Like I, I always had a passion for it. I always thought it was really interesting. And I was like, I'm going to go work in a real estate brokerage as a commercial agent and learn that game. And um, my goal was to go be a broker for a few years, make enough money, and then start investing on my own. And frankly, I had access to my dad, who was a brilliant real estate investor and did really well in it. And so I, I thought that it might be a waste not to take advantage of that too. So I went and worked for a brokerage. But as you mentioned, interesting time, 2008. Spent the summer get, uh, studying and then got my real estate license. And I started at Sperry Vanessa Commercial Brokerage in uh, LA exactly one week before Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. And the whole banking industry collapsed in the U.S. How did you react? What did you have to do? No one's buying anything. So if you have to sell, you're fire selling or you're just hanging on to your stuff because why would you sell? And here I am a broker that only I only make money when people transact. So I'm trying to convince people to sell their properties at a time where you definitely shouldn't be selling and no one's buying anything because they don't know when the bottom's going to when it's going to bottom out. And that's how a recession happens is everyone's scared and freezes up. And so... You know, that year in real estate, I made $350, which is not enough to pay your bills in LA. (laughs) Thankfully, actually, one of my still to this day closest friends, he had built a bakery when he was 18 and sold it and made a little money and then got into real estate. He was two years older than me. I would ask him, he was two years senior than me. I'd be like, well, what are you seeing? He's like, oh, it's a screwed up time. We're not going to be making much money right now. Like, well, that's a problem because I don't have any money. I'm just spending on credit cards right now. Like, this is tough. You were spending on credit cards. Oh, yeah. I was always very confident in myself that at some point I would make money. Like, I just knew. I, I don't know what it was. And it wasn't cockiness. It was just like, I, I looked at the people around me. I looked at how people made money. And I was like, I'll be able to make money soon enough. And if this is just a temporary slip in the economy, I'll be okay. And so I'm going to rack up credit card debt because frankly, I want to live a good enough life in my early 20s that I don't want to regret like living super frugally just so I don't have a little debt later. And I did the math. So I ended up in 25 grand in credit card debt and it, for four years. The interest on that cost me $8,000. I would do it all over again, no problem, because that allowed me to go to Vegas when I was making $350 a year allowed me to do a few things and I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I went to Vegas when I was 22 with my friends. 
I think you can do that when you have a safety net. Even though like theoretically successful data have a safety net, that was not like I wouldn't end up homeless, but it was everything until then. Basically ended up after a year of making nothing, I started making minimum wage. I'd run out of money three weeks into the month and then and I had and I'd capped out my credit card. So I'd like scramble to try to figure out what I was going to eat. Like I'd have like bread and, you know, a piece of cheese and ketchup. Like that's how I was living for like a year. And although I think it's clear from Eric's tone that he doesn't necessarily regret these decisions, he does admit they were a bit reckless. But it's this recklessness, maybe a carefree attitude that would allow Eric to invest in his interests, no matter how risky they might be. And that next interest would be in the music business. All right. The, the, the real estate thing isn't quite panning out. Uh, and so you decide to pivot to something called Fame Wizard, or at least at one point. Can you tell me about that pivot? Yeah, I got a call. Yeah, it's like February of 2009. And from my friend's dad, and so I played music since I was four. I mentioned the guitar. I did actually make money on my own. I went and ended up selling Beanie Babies and bought an electric guitar and then started a band. I was in a band all through middle school and high school. And my drummer pursued it. When I went to college, he pursued drumming. And he went through some things, uh, some challenges, and I always looked out for him. So his dad called me in 2009 after I was out of college and said, hey, I appreciate what you've done for my son and watched out for him. And I really think there's an opportunity to help these aspiring musicians and these struggling artists make a middle-class wage, at least, and like create a middle-class of musicians. He wanted to harness the raw entrepreneurial spirit of musicians to help them focus it. I was like, okay. And he's like, and I think you're a talented young entrepreneur. I see your hustle. I've seen what you've been doing and always admired you. Do you have any ideas of how you build a business around that? One of the things U of A did a really good job of teaching me was how to write a business plan. So I was like, yeah, I'll put a business plan together. I wrote a business plan, got it to him in April. It took a couple months to really put everything together that I thought, but we built this like one-on-one business coaching for musicians model that I was like, this could be really cool and we could use the internet and we had all these technological features and stuff. And I gave it to him and he's like, great, I'll get back to you. And then he just doesn't, nothing comes of it. And so I go back to working in real estate. That was April. And we put together this real estate auction that I was going to try to, I had like seven listings and I get a call like the week before it from him saying, hey, so I've raised us a million dollars. You get 5% of the company and I'm gonna pay you minimum wage and you're gonna run it. And I was like, making minimum wage is better than making $350 a year. So (laughs) I didn't go back to my real estate office for two months to pick up my stuff. I just was like, I'll pick it up at some point. Didn't didn't work another day in real estate in that sense. So it was like August 1st of 2009, I started full-time on building this music company. I did it for two years and he did a lot for me and I've thanked him since because he basically gave me the opportunity to go learn a ton of shit and make every mistake in the book, like go through three developers to build a basic website because I had no idea how to do that. And like I learned a lot through it. You know, we ended up with 15,000 musicians on this platform. It was one-on-one business coaching for musicians. Like we got it to profitability, but also realized the biggest lesson on that after a couple of years was it is really hard to run a business when your customer has no money. And the thing I took advantage of the most was network and that just crushed it for us. He opened up his network, which was Deepak Chopra's network, which was very solid for the music industry. But at the same time, I realized that I don't care how successful you've been, it doesn't mean you're going to be amazing at the next thing. Because he wanted to do a lot of things that would have crushed the company. He made a lot of poor decisions that didn't end up doing well for us. He hired people that we I knew were bad ideas and they ended up being a waste of money. And you see it with a lot of second time, third time founders where it's like, I've had success, so I'm going to be successful at anything. And it's just not the case. Like luck is such a big factor in success. And I don't think enough people give that credit. So in that situation, I think learning as much you can from someone's experience is important, but not necessarily their intelligence. 
no matter how knowledgeable you become, you're still susceptible to making bad decisions. That's why it's so important to keep listening and learning no matter how high you climb. Sometimes success can be blinding. Eric, on the other hand, was eager to learn when he saw Fame Wizard was no longer a fit. He just left. His optimism combined with his robust sense of agency assured him that there would be greater opportunities ahead. And he was right. The time was coming to leave Fame Wizard, and I, I knew that. So uh, my dad in 2008 decided, I think this was like his version of a midlife crisis, to finance three fashion companies and try to start a t-shirt company and this other uh, he hired the guy that did all the design for Burton to start like a snowboard brand and all this stuff. And 2008 hit and it all went belly up. So he calls me and goes, I've got about 6,000 t-shirts in a warehouse. You can probably sell them for like a buck a piece at a swap meet. Go make six grand. I know you could use some cash. Like, I don't want to fucking deal with this. I'll just write it off. So rented a U-Haul for a couple hundred bucks, went and picked up 6,000 t-shirts, put in my apartment. And it turns out liquidating t-shirts doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's like a penny a t-shirt. And so we're talking about 60 bucks in t-shirts, if I try, which wasn't even enough to get out of the U-Haul. And so I called some friends like, hey, how about just throw me nine bucks and I'll give you a t-shirt that like, I'll pick one out for you. And all of a sudden, all these guys are giving me nine bucks. And I was like, it's under 10, so it sounds cheap and it's a single digit. And it worked. And so then I'm sitting with my next door neighbor who had built a t-shirt company way back before that, like a few years before. And I'm saying... We all hate shopping. What if we just sent them to people like on a monthly basis? And, you know, we did that. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I know the t-shirt business. I could always help us make new t-shirts when we can run through this. And like, let me call a friend from Arizona and see if he can put up a little website for us. So called a friend. He put up a one-page website. My co-founder, Austin, was a really good graphic designer. So he built the logo and all this stuff. Put up a website and he clicked a button and went to PayPal to subscribe. And we launched it. And I was hanging out with a friend that was in the tech scene. And he was like, listen, TechCrunch will write about anything that raises money. If you tell TechCrunch you raised around, they'll write about you. And so I emailed TechCrunch, hey, uh, Swagger of the Month, we raised $100,000. And I used one of my dad's LLCs in the real estate business. I was like, Erdan Holdings you know, invested $100,000 in Swagger of the Month. He gave us t-shirts and sent it to tips at techcrunch.com. And 15 minutes later, a guy named Josh Constein calls me immediately on my cell phone and goes, we heard about this, interviews me. 15 minutes later, it's on the homepage of TechCrunch and we got 600 customers like that. And so I took that lesson and hit up every other publication with an article I thought they'd want to write about. And we got into Thrillist, which at the time was one of the biggest men's blogs, uh, Urban Daddy. And then we got Maxim, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal about our business model, et cetera, et cetera. It just took off. How did it feel to have this take off so suddenly? I think, again, maybe it's cockiness, maybe it's confidence, but it was exciting to get the article. But there was a part of me that was like, yeah, that's how it should be. Fucking working. Damn time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it wasn't like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. It was like, damn time if something hit, you know, and it's like you swing the bat enough times, so you hope that you're going to connect at some point. And that was the connection. And we're running out of shirts now because we have thousands of customers now. Like pretty quickly, we had to start sourcing and figuring it out and had to go to work. And by the way, we're still not making any money because there wasn't enough liquidity to like pay ourselves. So we did this for a year and a half and it was like we were grinding and like working 18 hour days to 20 hour days, seven days a week. We had one, an employee here and there, but really couldn't afford it. The unit economics were great, but the actual economics weren't enough for us to make a living off of. And so I was like, we got to raise money, sell this or shut it down because like it's not sustainable the way we're operating right now. 
I get a call from a, a friend that owned an e-commerce holding company. And they said, uh, hey, have you thought about selling your company? I'm open to it. I was trying to play it be coy. And they go, um, well, how much would you want for it? And I'm like, my heart's gone. I'm like, uh, and I took my debt, my credit card debt. I doubled it because I was on 50% of the company and I threw out the number and they went, great. Can you come down and pass everything off? I'll hand you a check right now. There I was, I just sold my company, huge check, more money than I'd ever held, put it in the bank, paid off my debt, and now I'm flat broke with no income. <laughs> with no money in the bank and no job, at that moment, it must've felt like Eric was back at square one. But he had come a long way since the days of touting knives as a college kid. His drive and the networking skills he had honed from his time in the music industry had helped him create a standout brand from nothing. Who knew that 6,000 t-shirts and a shot in the dark email would give Eric his first taste of entrepreneurial ecstasy. It's this freewheeling spirit, this liberty to toss ideas at the wall and see what sticks, to make mistakes and give yourself the grace to start over that I admire so much in Eric. From Eric's example, it's clear that when you have the guts to persevere, any hands-on experience has the potential to propel you into your next big break. So I had no income, no job, no idea what I was going to be making. So I ended up moving in with a friend and then got it going very quick. But those three, it was three weeks before I figured my shit out. But like those three weeks were incredibly stressful because I, like, I couldn't sign a lease. I didn't even know what I could commit to. Calling a few friends, trying to look for a job. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, I got offered three jobs. Which was run e-commerce at Warner Music, run business development for Live Nation, and consult at this little incubator uh, called Science that had just launched this cool brand called Dollar Shave Club. My parents obviously were like, you gotta work at Live Nation or Warner Music with Science. I'm like, yeah, but the commute, I live in Santa Monica and driving to Burbank or Hollywood sounds awful. I don't wanna work here and startups are more fun. And they're like, yeah, you've done enough with startups. You made no money. I think it's time to get a good job. And I'm like, I don't know. Warner Music and Live Nation offered me hundred grand a year. Science offered me, I think it was 84 and I told them I was being offered hundred and they matched it. So I was all, all the same salary, but two had a massive commute, one didn't. The other thing I was being told is like, you have Fame Wizard, you've got swag, which is style. Now you're going into the music industry. Like it really fits the narrative. At the time it felt that way. Now I realize I had three different e-commerce businesses, but at the time it wasn't really the vernacular. And it went back to like, what am I excited about? And that, that was a big part of it. I went back to working for someone in a sense, but it just felt right. I'm, I'm most interested in that transition because like all these businesses before you're kind of on like the founding team of. Yeah. And I needed the reset. I needed some income. I needed to know. It was the first time I found out what my real worth was, knowing that I was worth hundred grand a year at least. I had a lot of autonomy because quickly I went from consulting at science to working on a vitamin company that was failing, pivoting them to be an activewear brand, which became called Ellie. Uh, which was basically swag of the month, but for women's activewear. I was brought in to consult on marketing. I was like, this isn't going to work from a marketing perspective. Like the numbers are terrible. And I don't know that we can fix this just by fixing marketing. Like the economics don't make sense. And so he said, well, let's pivot. Let's do your business, but with activewear, because it was like peak Lululemon hype and like good timing. And so we launched it and did 80 grand in the first two weeks and went, oh, this is worth it brought over my partner from Swag of the Month to be the operator. I was the marketing guy. He was the operations guy, which is what we divided in Swag of the Month too. And the two of us basically ran the company with, we were not in charge, but you know, we crushed it. We did 2 million in revenue in the first four months and got to a 6 million run rate in month four. 
And then this is where the not being the boss caught up to me. The science and them decided to vertically integrate the business, wanted to open a factory, do all these things. And I'd built a network at that point. I called a friend that had founded Seven Genes. I said, hey, we want to do this, this, and this. What does that cost? And we had raised more money at this point and made money. So we had like six or eight million in the bank. And he goes, it's about 20 million bucks. And I'm like, okay, so we have six. How do you think that works? He's like, oh yeah. So what you're going to do is you're going to spend $6 million and need another 14. (laughs) I remember being just a complete dick about it. So I go into our board meeting and I say, guys, this is not a good idea. I just talked to someone that knows more about this industry. And I'm hearing this from other people too. Like this is going to cost us more money than we have. And it's a distraction. Like the business is growing fast. We should stick with this. And one of the board members looked at me, never forget and said, hey, you're the marketing guy. Just market what we tell you to. So it's like at that point, I'm like, well, fuck it. Then it's your company. You're going to fuck it up. Even though I have an incentive to make this successful, you just took my power away. So if I have no power, then I'm just going to throw my hands up and be like, fuck it. Do what you want to do. But I was committed. I was still a professional about it. So I was like, all right, I'll market what you tell me to. So that was, yeah, February of 2013. March, we launched this new brand with this new vertical integration. We burn all our capital like I knew we would. We have to fire half the team. We lose half our revenue. The two co-founders get fired. It was absurd that we were put in that position because of stupid decisions at the top. So I was angry in that sense. They took what was a rocket ship and should have been huge. We outpaced Dollar Shave Club out of science. We were growing faster than they were, revenue-wise and headcount-wise. Like, we were just skyrocketing. I think a lot of us can empathize with Eric's frustration after that disastrous end. In a 2018 study, 69% of employees reported that they would be more satisfied in their workplace if their employers utilized their skills better. Contrast that with 60% who have left or considered leaving jobs because of the poor relationships they have with their supervisor and because their skills aren't being utilized to their full potential. It's no surprise that someone like Eric with such a strong craving for agency would want to leave and never have to answer to an unreasonable superior again. Now, he was looking for something new. And after years of learning from real estate leadership, the music business, and his partner at Swag of the Month, something new really meant answering to himself. And then Science made a decision to fire the two founders and bring in a CPA as the CEO. I worked with him for a few months. And then June, it was either late May or early June, we decided to part ways. And I helped them find someone to buy the company. What did that transition feel like? Great. I'd saved a bunch of money because I was still used to not working. So I didn't, this is the first time in my career I ever didn't have, I didn't have to do anything right away. So I went to Mexico for a week and felt great about it and was like, I'll figure it out when I get back. I got introduced to a guy that owned a massive activewear manufacturing company because I'd like to get into, you know, e-commerce too. Can you show me an e-commerce business model? And I was like, sure. So I built a business plan for him on how he could get online. When he said, how much would it cost you to put a business plan together? And I knew that this would take me an evening. And I said, uh, I'm going to have to pull in a lot of stuff, et cetera. It's going to be probably cost you 25 grand. He's like, okay, can I pay you half up front and half after? My heart is pounding out of my chest. And I was like, yes, <laughs> no problem. Half up front, half after. Sounds great. We did an all-nighter. Like we're college kids, which we basically were. I was <laughs> 26. We put this business plan together and <laughs> brought it into him and he, had, he paid for it. I get back from Mexico and he goes, I'm, you know, buying this. I know you're transitioning out, but I want to hire you. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to work for you though. I just not working for anyone ever again. I don't think. And he's like, 
no, 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 like you got, you should come work. I'm like, listen, okay, I'll consult for you. And he's like, I need you in at least three days a week. And I was like, okay, um, three days a week, I'll come in early morning to early afternoon, but it's going to be 200 bucks an hour. And he goes, okay, fine. Sorry, what? (laughs) I love how you're just throwing out these numbers and people are saying yes. And so that was my first client. And so I started driving out Tuesday through Thursday, I drive out, which gave me four days a week because I, I didn't really, at that point, I wanted to grind. He gave me my own office. He let me work on other stuff while I was there. And I'd built a good reputation in marketing because Ellie was a marketing success. It was an operational failure, but a marketing success. And so I started helping companies, advising for them on how to drive revenue growth using marketing. And I ended up working with a bunch of other brands, including Red Bull, Verizon, started like advising for these companies. Every other opportunity you had before this is either an idea came to you or came to someone else, and then you started it. And then with this, it seems like you just started working and the idea materialized in front of you. Did you like this way of coming to a business more? Way better. When you build a business out of a need that's in front of you, it's really easy to make it work. So natural. Yeah, it was natural. And it made money right away. I never raised money for Hawk. I never went into debt for Hawk because I made consulting fees. And then I got to a point where I was making a lot of consulting fees and I hired a few people and then I made more and then I hired a few people. And uh, and then it was January of 2014. I built a small little SWAT team to help my clients. And that month doubled my revenue on the consulting side. This seems to be growing quite fast and naturally. That whole period of six months, I was working also on the side, building a tea company called Shape Tea. And uh, the tea company, over the course of two months, it made about half of what I made month one in Hawk. And I looked at the tea and I looked at Hawk and I went, stick with Hawk. Like this is taken off naturally. My first year at Hawk Media, we profited $400,000. Now in product businesses, that $400,000 goes right back into product development or whatever. In an agency, you can just put that in your pocket if you want to or reinvest in something. The cool thing about building a service business or businesses that cash flow is you can quickly make money and it's like make money along the way, which I think people undervalue. Yeah. Yeah, the biggest lesson I've learned in business came from my dad and I try to say it to everybody because it's so true and I think it has a lot to do with the mental health of entrepreneurs too. Like a month in, I had this small team of people and one of them was one of my key people was managing like half our clients. And he emails me and it's like, hey, Eric, long story short, I met a girl, fell in love, asked her where in the world she wanted to go. She said, Hawaii, we're here now. I'll be working remotely with a picture of him and this girl in front of the Waikiki Towers. Looking at my phone, like, what the fuck? He's in Hawaii. I can't do much. So I was like, I got to be calm. And I'm like, hey, man, like just handle your stuff. He's like, of course, no, I got everything, man. Like, I'm going to be working remote. I'll stay on top of all my stuff, but we're going to be enjoying Hawaii. And at that point, like, then I don't give a shit. Handle your, you're handling your stuff. I'm, we're good. Next day, I get calls from all of his clients. All, we had four. We had eight clients total. And four of them call me and they're like, where the fuck is this guy? What are we paying you for? And they're all berating me because he had promised them all things on Monday and Tuesday and none of them came through. Calling him, calling him, calling him. He can't get a hold. About 3 p.m. I finally get him on the phone and I was like, what the fuck? And he goes, Eric, I'm going to stop you right there right now. It's the happiest day of my life. I'm getting married and I need you to just respect that. And hangs up on me. Nothing I can do. He hung up on me, ignored me after that. So I look at Tony, who became my business partner, and I tell Tony what's going on. And he's like, well, and so he picks up the slack. The day ends. I get in the car and I call my dad to tell him the story and vent a little bit. And he goes, 
Oh yeah, that shit happens all the time. Anyways, I got to run, talk to you later and hangs up. And I'm just like looking at my phone like, hey, that shit happens all the time. Got to run quick. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Took me probably three years to learn that lesson. You're, you're running the business. Any problem that comes to you is a problem no one else can solve. And the bigger you get, the bigger those problems are because hopefully the small ones are being solved by your team. So like as a business owner, you're going to get some crazy shit on your plate and it's going to happen all the time. And that's the job. That's what you sign up for as an entrepreneur. So I hear so many entrepreneurs like, it's hard. It's so hard. I'm so stressed out all the time. It's like, did someone make you become an entrepreneur or did you just start your business? Like go get a fucking job if it's hard. What do you mean it's hard? Everything's hard. Being an employee is hard. Being like, again, I go back to my childhood where it's like being an employee you're relying on someone else's opinion of you to have a job like that's tough too unless you have a good boss like that sucks and so all of the everything's hard but pick your hard so to speak and if you've chosen to be an entrepreneur no one made you you chose except the fact that you're going to be dealing with the biggest problems in the company forever because there is this was the big realization there is no finish line tim cook Jeff Bezos are arguing in front of Congress. Like Elon Musk got called out by Elizabeth Warren for being what a mooch or something. He's the guy that he paid more taxes than any man in history last year. This is the shit you're going to deal with at the highest level. And then it trickles down from there. Whatever size business, the scale usually and hopefully flexes with the scale of the problem that you can withstand bigger problems as you get bigger. But I will say from now eight years running Hawk, the problems get bigger. The first time we got offered to sell was a year in. We got offered 14 million bucks for the company, but we knew we could grow. We, we knew we were onto something. Like at that point, we had projections that had us, we're going to do 10 million bucks in revenue in three years. We're on the right track. And like, and it was based off real numbers that we were very comfortable with. Like, let's just keep going. Like we're making, it was my partner and I was like, we're making good money. Like, let's just keep going with it. So we turned it down. Honestly, about a year ago, we finally got an offer that was like, holy, like nine figure, like that's a real offer. And we went, all right, let's really calculate this. And I had a guy that's an investor in our fund that's been a great advisor to me. And so he used to always say, all these fucking kids are going for their billion dollar exit. He's like, Eric, you get offered $50 million. Take it and go cry on a beach somewhere about what you could have had. That always sat with me. So when I got offered a hundred, I sat there and I'm like, okay, I pay out my execs and my employees like I should. I My partner owns 25%, so 75%, let's say whatever, I'm using round numbers. Let's say it goes down to 60% if I pay out the team too. And so 60%, then I pay taxes, we're down to 40%. Now I have $40 million using round numbers. So 40 million bucks, and then I invest, what? In real estate? Okay. So right now, real estate, let's say I can get a 5% return. So I'm gonna make $2 million a year off that real estate. And then you sit there and you go, so I'm gonna make a third to a quarter of the money a year off my real estate investment as I were my marketing agency. And my marketing agency is growing at 70% a year, 80% a year. Real estate's gonna appreciate it, what, maybe 10 or 20? And do I think my real estate or my marketing agency is gonna fail? No. Crazy to say, I can't believe I'm saying no to $100 million, but I think I should keep this. So I called, like, and I'm like, I got offered. He's like, fucking take it. I'm like, well, hold on. And I told him everything I just said. And he's like, no, I don't think you should. And then I said it to my wife. I said it to my business partner. I went through this all myself before I articulated it to all of them. They all went, no. All right. And what would you do if you sold? I'm doing what I would want to do. Well, then you have your answer. If you don't have a better idea. And so it really made, it brought a lot of clarity to that. And it made me realize that I probably won't 
sell this company. Maybe that's not the goal. Maybe the goal isn't to sell. And so, no, I'm just going to keep going with it. I really like that. I want to offer a, like a counter example. Cause I, I recently talked to someone that, um, that also recently sold their company and he was like, you have to sacrifice everything, your health, your like family to build something that is going to have an impact. I remember hearing that and thinking that can't be it, but it seems like you had that be it for a while. Do you think the no sleep detriment to your health years were necessary to get to the place you are now? I think hard work is a great equalizer. If you can work your absolute ass off, you will probably be some level of successful. I do think it was important because, so when I started, I was selling from like nine to six. And then I went, I need a little more time. I'm going to do eight to six. Then I went to seven to six when I was starting Hawk. And then I was like seven to seven, fine, 12 hours a day. But I saw such a compounding effect of results from putting in just a couple extra hours in terms of growth of Hawk, because I grinded with Hawk too. I think all that hard work and grinding just made it like you, it's a muscle. Like you just get easier once you get to that pace. And I, I talked to one of my execs today, like the pace we work at Hawk is uncomparable. Like I, and I say that like everyone loves to say they're off their company's fast paced. Yeah, come try this. And I've, I have yet to hear that someone leaves Hawk to work somewhere else and it's faster paced. Like, and I even see it when I take a vacation. Like if I go away for a week and I get back to work, every time I do that, I'm like, oh my God, like this shit's a lot. But then you get back into that rhythm and you're good. So I, whenever someone says they can't vacation on their business, they're not managing it well. But what happens is also I put in so much time when I'm around that like I also don't feel guilty, nor do I see the business suffer when I do want to go take off. And yeah, I think that hard work has helped that a lot because outworking people definitely can get you a lot further. I kind of want to look at where everything is today. Um, you have like the venture arm, like what are you investing in? And then also you have your book and tell me a little bit about what that's about. Where everything is today. So we are expanding internationally. We're constantly looking at how to grow this because frankly, that's what drives me at this point. It's like the sandbox. I want to, it's, it's funny. It's back to the beginning of what we started with. It's learning. I like learning. I want to constantly be trying new things. And with that comes continuing to shore up the operation and the stuff like building that. And so then, you know, you mentioned FabFitFun, actually. They approached me and, and said, hey, we want you to be on the cap table and invest. And I was like, guys, I don't, at the time I was convinced I wasn't investing in venture. I'm like, I invest in real estate. I had this whole thing in my head. And they're like, no, 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 we're not asking. We're telling you to invest. You just tell us how much. It can be a small check. I'm like, fine. So I wrote a small check and that company's worth somewhere between three and $5 billion now. So couple years ago, I had realized that, you know, six years, we had grown in thousands of companies successfully through a marketing methodology that we had started with, frankly, that I developed at Swagger the Month and Alley, and then kept running with and it kept working over and over. And so after thousands of companies and it working for them, I started talking about it and doing talks about it and speeches. I get asked to speak a lot. And then I got, I met a guy that said, it was a ghostwriter and said, Hey, have you thought about putting out a book? I would love to put out a book about just our marketing methodology. And that was the birth of the Hawk Method. So for two years, worked on it. Now we've pre-launched it on Amazon and Target and all that. And we're going for the New York Times bestseller. We've sold awesome. it. We've sold over 10,000 copies. We're aiming wow. for 20. Yeah. Wow. So it's doing very well. Doing great. And we March 8th is the official launch date. It's on Amazon, Target, Walmart, or hawkmethod.com or thehawkmethod.com. We're making it easy to find. Perfect. And the last question is basically, if you were to give yourself one piece of advice when you were 24, 
what piece of advice do you think would help you get to the position you are now a little bit easier and a little bit more efficiently? The two biggest pieces of advice both came from my dad and they're probably the most critical. One was keep swinging the bat. That and that shit happens all the time. Those two, now that I've seen so much success, not for myself, that's not what I'm saying. I've seen so many other people's successes and how they become successful. You realize be smart enough, hardworking enough, and really the big X factor, timing, which you can't predict. And so you just got to keep trying shit and it's some, and no one to, you know, back off and try something else and just keep trying and keep working at it. At some point you will be successful. How successful it has to do with timing. But I do believe if you're hardworking and you're smart enough to like not go pursue something that has no business model, you're going to probably make some level of money. And so I think having that advice of like, just keep going for it. You're going to be fine. And know that signing up for entrepreneurship is signing up for dealing with shit all the time. You're going to deal with things that seem like they're going to take you out. So those two pieces, I'd say, it's that shit happens all the time and keep swinging the bat. It's not easy to picture Eric, CEO of one of the world's most successful marketing consultancies on the planet, sweating over how to pay for his next meal, or falling into thousands of dollars of debt with no clear way out, or running a business while earning minimum wage. For the longest time, that was his experience. But driven by his love for experiential knowledge, he was able to turn each challenge into a learning opportunity, each failure into a springboard to launch into the next chapter of his story. It's never been a question of whether he'd become a founder someday, but a question of when. And at the same time, it's admirable to hear his awareness and ability to acknowledge that success doesn't materialize in a void. It happens because a thousand distinct variables intersect at just the perfect time and under just the right conditions. Some of them he could control, like his work ethic or how he managed his wallet, but most were out of his control. What if Ellie hadn't tanked? What if Eric's dad didn't have all those extra t-shirts lying around? What if Eric had never been introduced to the guy who would become Hawk's first client? It's pretty clear from Eric's story that life can be unpredictable and risky. Good timing and the swift hand of fate played their roles. Eric knows that when life throws you an opportunity, you don't know if it'll turn out to be a strike, a hit, or maybe even a home run. But if you want to get anywhere, you've got to go to bat and start swinging. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Day, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kendazer. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.